Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. Well, that's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10X. There's a quick application there and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Jeff Wald, author of The End of Jobs. If you want to maximize your relationships, 
you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends, Travis Chappell and Eric Schwarzinski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. My name is Eric Skorzynski, and I am your host. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with Jeff Wald, the founder of WorkMarket, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to manage freelancers. Jeff has founded several other technology companies, including Spinback, a social sharing platform eventually purchased by Salesforce.com. And Jeff is an active angel investor and startup advisor, as well as serving on numerous public and private boards of directors. Jeff is the author of the Amazon bestseller, The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers, and Agile Corporations. You guys are really going to enjoy this episode, and be sure to tag Travis Chapel on Instagram if you like what's happening here on the show. Just head over to your Instagram stories, post a screenshot of this episode, and tag Travis with the handle at Travis Chapel. All right, guys, let's get into my interview with Jeff Wald. All right, Jeff, welcome to the Build Your Network podcast. So excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Absolutely. Well, we like to wind these conversations back to the very, very beginning. So tell me a little bit about middle school, Jeff. (laughs) What were you like uh, around that time and what was kind of uh, on your mind? You know, what was on my mind at that period is, am I a math guy or am I an arts guy? I was writing screenplays and theater plays, but I was also doing a lot of very heavy mathematics, and I didn't really know where I fit, which I think is, is pretty age-appropriate at, uh, at that age. And uh, I was trying to figure out, am I going to be a soccer guy or a baseball guy? And uh, I ended up with soccer. Gotcha, gotcha. So thinking career-wise, like obviously you've done so much work with the the freelance space, but it's not mm-hmm. really something you sit in kindergarten and go like, when I grow up, I want to help freelancers connect with people. It, honestly, the idea of freelancing is not on most people's minds. So what was your kind of your original, I guess, career path or what was kind of the path that people kind of pushed you on early on? Well, look, I'll do you one better. Not only was I not thinking about freelancers, I wasn't thinking about entrepreneurship. Hmm. It's not like I was the kid that had a lemonade stand and was looking for other businesses and and thinking like that. I I just wasn't. Look, I was afraid of a lot of things and I was not as outgoing or as deliberate as I would like to think. And uh, I, I just, you know, I kind of drifted from thing to thing in, and that is actually how my career got started. It wasn't sitting there saying, I need to go be an investment banker. It was, I was offered a job as an investment banker. I'd interviewed to be a consultant. I'd interviewed at uh, Procter & Gamble. I had interviewed with the CIA to work at the Central Intelligence Agency. But I was offered the job as an investment banker, and that's what started me down a career track in finance. Did your family have any kind of push on you at all? Like as far as like what direction they want you to go or was it kind of just do what you want to do, <laughs> feel, it, feel it out? They had very negative push in as much as don't do this, mm-hmm. as in my dad saying, do not go into medicine. He had a very strong uh, feeling at the time around 
insurance and insurance's ability to dictate what doctors could do or not do. And so while I did find AP Bio and dissecting all the different things that we dissected interesting, he was very, very uh, forceful in his point of view that that is not a good career path. You don't hear a lot of stories where kids say, my parents didn't want me to be a doctor. It's usually, yeah. my parents want me to be a doctor and I wanted to do something else. That's that's interesting. So so you got offered this job in kind of the finance realm. And tell me a little bit about just starting that journey. Did that click with you or did it just make sense as like, you know, hey, I'm good at math. I kind of, it kind of makes sense that I would do a job like this. How long did you kind of track with that that career path? I stayed on that path for some time for about seven years. And I did find that I was very good at it. And I found that I, if I threw myself into it, everything made sense. You know, the numbers all made sense. When I build a model and you can kind of watch the model dance, if you will, and you change these inputs and it changes those outputs, all of that made sense to me. And it was easy to sit in my cubicle for 18 hours a day, seven days a week and build those models and build those pitch decks because, you know, as a junior banker, you're not you know, really doing much else. You're not putting together big multi-billion dollar deals. You're just building Excel models and building PowerPoint slides. And uh, that all made sense to me. And I, I understood that if I worked harder than others, I would go further. And so I did just that. And um, it, uh, it served me incredibly well. I was put on bigger and bigger deals, more important things. And when I decided to go off to business school, JP Morgan, firm I work for, uh, paid for everything. And so they were so eager for me to go and expand my mind and then come back. And that was by far the most transformative experience I had was getting into and attending uh, Harvard Business School. Wow. So kind of getting that formal education, because there's so many times that, that you know, we have people on the show and... It's, I think it's almost become a, the default answer now is like, you know, don't go to college, like go start a business, go do this. And there's almost a, and I understand the reason of a lot, but it's almost become trendy to push against like the kind of formal education system. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about college? Like obviously going to Harvard is like, that's college, college. I mean, you're going to a real prestigious kind of university. Like, do you recommend that path for a lot of people? Do you think that college is devalued more than it should be? No. I would say it's valued more than it should be. Hmm. We have 32% of the adult population has attended a four-year university, I believe graduated from. And the vast majority are saddled with a huge amount of debt for an education they didn't need to get the jobs they had. And so, you know, is college for everybody? Clearly not, because only 32% actually finish it. And it's clear, I believe, when we look at the data, that a large number of those, unknown what, Maybe it's instead of 32%, it should be 28%, 27%. Some percent of people that go to college shouldn't have. And there's a great thing. I don't know if you, do you know Mike Rowe? Do you know the name? He's yeah. got that yeah. show, Dirty the Jobs. Dirty Jobs, yeah. Look, there's a stigma against not going to college, I would say, is the prevailing thing. Maybe not in kind of the entrepreneurial world. Right. In the general but, culture at large. Yeah. And he talks a lot about this, that kids that want to go into a trade for which you can earn a wonderful living. I mean, you know, high five figures, low six figures income, the annual income that that you can certainly earn. And there are huge job gaps there. We have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these jobs go unfilled because we're pushing people down a path to do a four-year education and that they don't need. Mm. And a lot of those people would be incredibly well-served 
by just going directly to a trade school, directly to a technical school, directly into an apprenticeship and earning the trades and the skills that they need to provide in jobs that have a tremendous job security from all things that may happen in the labor markets. Yeah, I think that's the biggest argument against colleges, the cost versus reward thing. Like it's it's so much of an investment to get a job where you can pay off college. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. so many people that I've worked alongside. I didn't go the college route. And I have so many people I've I've worked with who are like, they're glad they're getting a raise or they're glad they're moving up because then they can pay down more of their debt <laughs> from college. And it seems very backwards. Right. And it seems like the when you could really get the true benefit is like a situation like yours where I'm getting basically free college education from a prestigious place and I get to get the the knowledge without the the debt and the weight of it, you know. Look, that is certainly fair. There are a few things that I had a tremendous, tremendous benefit. And to pretend that it was anything other than a head start would be incorrect. One is my parents paid for my undergrad Mm -hmm. and my first grad degree, actually. I did a five-year combined undergrad and grad program, and they paid for all that. So I walked out of college debt-free. That's not a situation the majority of people uh, get. And then as I went off to business school, J.P. Morgan paid for it. Mm -hmm. That is not a thing many people get. And so my ROI calculation is very easy in those, but I 100% agree with your statement that there is, there's a calculation to be done. How much is this going to cost me? How much time? What opportunities are going to be afforded to me afterwards? Because going and just to pick on electrician, going and being an electrician right now without going to a four-year school, you will do better than most people. Most of you need more than 50% of people that come out with a four-year degree who are saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and can't get a job paying nearly what you can make as an entry-level electrician. So for a number of people, that's the math they should do. And the fact, and this is to Mike Rowe's point, because he is pounding this uh, this drum and sponsoring a lot of people to go to technical schools and trying to take away any inappropriate stigma that is attached to very noble professions that are very good professions for people to be in for their careers. Right. 100%. I'm kind of curious what opened your eyes. So like, obviously you went right into the finance world, working with JP Morgan, like that's a, a good company to work for. Like you've got kind of the, mm-hmm. the not a nine to five, but you've got your day-to-day figured out in that, in that regard. What was the kind of push you to open your eyes to go, okay, there's working for a company, then there's this whole world of freelance, you know, like there's this, which feels, you know, for me, like, it's kind of like the obvious path now, like around the time I was graduating was 2013. And everybody was like, I want to be a freelancer or an entrepreneur or a YouTuber, whatever that that fill in the blank was. But that's a relatively new thing, I feel like for people to kind of think of that as a default, you know, what what opened your eyes to think about that as opposed to sticking with the kind of brick and mortar in these four walls working for a CEO kind of mentality? Well, I had a few more stops on my journey before I really became an entrepreneur. And so I went from JP Morgan to work at a venture capital firm, an Israeli firm called Glenrock, which was an amazing experience. And it was from there meeting with entrepreneurs, meeting with these men and women that thought, you know what, there's a better way for me to do this. And I'm going to stake my career. I'm going to stake my personal capital. I'm going to stake my career capital. I'm trying to find a better way. And if successful, I'm going to get a lot of rewards for that. And if I fail, there's a whole ecosystem. I pick myself up, I dust myself off, and I can try again. There was something about that, Eric, that I just found so alluring, so enamoring. 
And I, after four years as a venture capitalist, said, now I'm going to start my first company, which was not in the freelance space. We built a content sharing platform that failed miserably and left me broke. Uh, but, you know, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off. And we restarted it and we successfully exited it eventually to Salesforce. And that was a good journey. And then I stumbled upon the freelance world and, uh, and started work market. Tell me, tell me about that experience kind of stepping into the entrepreneurship space. You know, obviously for someone listening, there's a lot of people listening who are in that world and there's a lot mm-hmm. of people listening who are in the, you know, the nine to five corporate kind of world and it can be comfortable, you know, like I'm sure you were making very good money in the the nine to five corporate world that you were in. How did you weigh out? Like when you were, when you were talking with entrepreneurs, when you're sitting down with people who had found a quote, better way. What was the better? What was the thing that appealed to you that that made you really interested in it? It was the passion that they had for this, right? Like the excitement in their voice, the everything they were bringing to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And then whenever time I meet with an entrepreneur, I always ask, what problem are you trying to solve? Right. And why is that a problem that you need to solve? And you can tell some people are very passionate about it. And some people just say, look, I just think it's a big problem. I can make a lot of money if I solve it. Okay, that's fine too. But here, here's the thing about entrepreneurship that I don't think gets said enough. It's easy to celebrate the successes and to look at Elon Musk's and Zuckerberg's and blah, blah, blah. That is obviously statistically so anomalous. And the most likely outcome that people should think about in leaving that nine to five job, and I would take some issue with nine to five because you know I was working 18 hours a day, seven hours, days a week. Yeah, so yeah, and what no nine to five. Look, the most likely outcome is that you're going to fail. And you're going to lose either your money or the people that invest in, in, in use money. That, that is the most likely outcome, like, mm. like 90%. That's what's going to happen. And so the idea that, you know what, I know what that math is, and I still think I can do it. There's something about that as an angel investor, as a venture capitalist, as an entrepreneur that I just, I admire. And in a lot of ways, I try to emulate, but I won't pretend, Eric, that it doesn't mean that I'm not scared when I'm doing it, as I sit now about to start my fifth company, I am scared, scared that I'll make the wrong decisions, scared I won't pick the right business, the right problem. I'm scared other people will think of it and beat us. I'm scared. But that fear is a great uh, motivator. Mm. And it it is a, it's an interesting thing. And somebody, I forget who it was, presented it to me and they said, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, and they said, you know, you could lose everything, (laughs) but you can always go get that corporate job again. You can always, the jobs are there, that there's a way to build yourself back up, but you don't know. And I think that's what separates a lot of the entrepreneurs from the people that are clocking in and clocking out from a different job is like, it's that, what if, what if this does take off? What if I do get to go to that next level? And it's for some, it's worth, you know, rolling the dice and making the jump. And for others, it's too scary to ever make that step. Um, where does where does logic play a role? Obviously, you're a numbers person, but also you're extremely passionate. You talked a lot about the emotion of it. When do you make the decision to do something like the fear is there? A lot of that's healthy, real fear. The numbers don't always look good. It doesn't always look like the stats are going to be in your favor, but you've got that gut feeling. What's the balance between being safe and being comfortable and taking a measured jump versus going all in? Here it is. Like, let's do it. It's such a good question. There is no clear line on any of this. And I will tell you that if you spend too much time thinking about the math, 
then you're not an entrepreneur. You shouldn't do it. And I fall into that category in a lot of ways, right? None of these things are binary. You're not 100% an entrepreneur or you're 100% not. Everyone's got a little bit of it in them. It's just, is there enough that you can nurture it and, and push forward? So I, when I think about starting a business, I think about the probabilities of it being successful. And I try to increase those probabilities by talking to potential customers, talking to potential team members, talking to anybody and everybody that'll listen. And now every time entrepreneur says, oh, well, before I share my idea, I need you to sign an NDA. I'm like, okay, well, you're ridiculous. That's a ridiculous thing. Your idea is useless and meaningless. And if it's so fragile that by sharing it, it's lost, then it's even more stupid than I think it is right now. So share your idea anywhere and everywhere and get everybody's input and help shape it because ideas are cheap. The will to execute is expensive. But I also, as I do that research and I write those business plans, I'm thinking about, is this a problem I want to solve? And does my passion increase as long as well as the probabilities? Because look, 90% fail. Okay. But if you were to break that down into the people that have kind of been there before and did the right research and blah, and blah, and blah, if I can go in before I put one line of code, before I hire a single person, before I formally start the company and legal stuff with 15 people that say, yeah, if you build this, I will use it. Mm -hmm. 15 corporate customers in that context or a thousand, you know, you send out survey after survey, like, yeah, if that thing existed, I would use it. That's very different. And so I always tell entrepreneurs, whatever's in your business plan is 100% wrong. I don't know how it's wrong. I certainly don't know how to fix it. All I can do as an investor is bet on your ability to adapt and take in that data. And so the more data that you can have before you start that journey, the better off you're going to be. And if that data shows you, you know what, there is nobody doing this. Everyone I talk to says, well, if you did do that, I would buy it. Every investor is like, you know what, I would give you money for something like that. And if you get fired up, those two things are moving in tandem. Now it's time to go. And this is, Eric, quite the process I'm in the middle of right now as I think about this next company. So as an investor and as someone starting it, like it's it's much more on the person's ability to adapt and pivot as opposed to all of the all of these different strategies and different uh, different directions they could take it. It's about their ability to handle the day-to-day kind of pivoting. All we can bet on as an investor is you hmm. and your ability to listen and to adapt because everything you know is wrong. You just don't know how it's wrong. It might be wrong just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit or it might be wrong completely and you need to totally pivot, but it's wrong. I'm 100% sure that it's wrong. <laughs> and so you have to listen and learn as much as you can and talk to as many people as possible and adapt. And if you do that, you're increasing your probability of success. That's what I always say to entrepreneurs is, look, you there are things that are positives and negatives and they increase or decrease your probabilities of success. We all know the stats. You start out with a very low probability of success. The more people you can bring to your company, that are willing to work with you, willing to forego that you know well-paying job, the more people you can convince to part with their dollars as investors, the more people you can convince to part with their dollars as customers, you're just increasing the probability of success. And that's your job as a founder, is to increase the probability. Because at the end of the day, it is still a dice roll and a lot of luck comes into it. Sure. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you. That work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. We, we're kind of getting to this point of the conversation anyway, because we're talking about these relationships, bringing in people that can that can you know help move the business along, increase that probability of success. And so I, I want to move is kind of to talk about the networking side of this. And mm-hmm. we ask this question to every single guest that comes on the show. Do you believe that who you know or the what you know is more important and why? Is there anybody that said what? There's a few, question? but the majority answer the, uh, the other one. <laughs> so. Look, there's, there's no way to know enough to have the what really be the answer to that. And this is why I'm such a big fan of empowering my teams and having people bring their authentic selves to work, having them understand the big picture, you know, the where I want to take the company, you know, why we get out of bed every morning, our North Star, I want them to understand that. And then I want them to bring their own brains to it. Because there is no way that me as Jeff Wald is going to know enough to do it. But collectively, when I've got 200 people on that team, if they're all pushing, pushing the boat in the same direction, the direction that I want it to go, we're going to end up in it. We have a higher probability of ending up in that space. And so the who I know is going to be much more impactful in terms of getting them there. The who I know to open doors and all these other things. There's a, there's a great charity called the Opportunity Network that I had the pleasure of being a founding board member of, which is based in this entire this entire notion of it is not what you know, it's who you know. And so we work with kids from less privileged socioeconomic backgrounds that are really smart. Therefore, they kind of have the what. They just don't know anybody. They don't know how to network. They don't know how to do these things. And they have a great tagline, which is talent is relatively evenly distributed. Opportunity mm-hmm. is not. And so we help these kids build, learn how to network and help build their networks so that they can open those doors. I didn't get that job at JP Morgan because I was the smartest guy that they interviewed, not by a long shot. I got it because somebody that uh, went to Cornell, I reached out to and she said, oh yeah, I'll talk to you. And then she eased my application along. She was a senior person at the bank in a different part, not in the investment bank. Mm -hmm. She made calls on my behalf. If I don't make that call to Susan Panzer, I called, we will never forget, I don't get that job. And my career trajectory is different. Didn't matter how smart I was. 
I had to have somebody who was a Cornell alum kind of reach out to the right people in HR to get my name uh, in the right place. Well, you, you mentioned bringing people in and like taking advice from everybody, hearing everybody's input, and also like sharing the mission of the business, the company, like mm-hmm. here's where we want to go. What's the balance there between having the vision for where you want it to go? Like what's the North Star you mentioned? And also giving people the flexibility to offer different paths to get there, different solutions. Like how do you balance that as a leader saying, hey, we want to get here, but also you're free to bring in any idea under the sun to get us to that point? Well, it's not any idea though, right? There have to be the guardrails set up. You are the leader of the business. You are choosing what that North Star is. Hmm. You should be adaptable and you should listen if somebody wants to come and present new data. I would always tell my team at Work Market, when a decision's been made, you should be very clear about how decisions are made. Are decisions votes? Are decisions unanimous? And so we keep debating until we get unanimity. Is the decision rest with a person? Does that person consult or do they just decide? The point being is be very clear about decisions were made. And at Work Market, it was very clear. I made the decision about the what. And then I wanted other people to make their own decisions about the how. Mm. Like, this is what we're getting done. But I would tell people, look, once I've made that decision, you have three choices. Get on board with it and start thinking about your how. How are you going to get done what I wanted done? Present me with new information that I didn't have when I made the decision, right? Don't come to me and rehash something. I already know that. Because your third choice is leave, get out. You don't have another choice. Those are your three choices. Either get on board with it and get going, bring me new information, and I will 100% change my mind. If the new information leads to a better, it leads to a different decision, or leave the company. Because I can't have people questioning the what. I want them to make up their own how, but if people start questioning the what, now it's, it's a very different process in company. I'm not saying it can't work. That's just not how I choose to lead. Hmm. You mentioned, obviously, the connection being huge for getting that first job. And I'm curious, is when was there a networking, when was there a connection made that maybe helped you accelerate one of these businesses? Maybe it was an idea that somebody brought or somebody brought in to look at something and get a fresh perspective. Is there a certain situation that stands out to you as saying like this, because of this connection, it totally <laughs> gave me a huge success moment? You know, there are very few things that actually change the trajectory of the business. They happen, but they don't happen that much, right? They happen where they move to one degree, two degrees. The second most important person in work market's journey is a guy named Fred Wilson. He's one of the most famous venture capitalists. And somebody made an introduction to Fred and he invested in the business. And if he doesn't, I'm not sure, not only did we not have a nine-figure exit, I'm not sure that we survive. You know, there are other things that instead of having as big an exit, we'd had an exit, but it wouldn't have been as big. There are some things that if I had done differently, we'd have a little bit bigger of an exit. But if Fred's not there, I'm not 100% sure that we even survive as a company. And the introduction to him, we went, we had breakfast. He listened to the whole pitch. He stood up. He said, I'm in. Put out his hand. We agreed on a number. That was it. He said, all right, standard NBCA, National Venture Capital Association terms. I was like, yep. It's like, okay, let's get it done. That was it. That was our seed funding. And at the time, it was me, my co-founder, and 19 PowerPoint slides. If not for that meeting with that individual, then all those times, because as you know, as well as I do, there are so many times you're going to get knocked down on these entrepreneurial journeys. And you got to pick yourself up. You got to look for those hands that are going to help you up. And the number of times that Fred either (laughs) literally, sometimes literally put his arm around me and my co-founder and just said, I got you guys. 
I've been here before. I know what these stumbles are like. Push through it. I will continue to support the company, both from his network and from his dollars, right? He put money into the company when other people wouldn't. And no other venture, few other venture capitalists have the wherewithal to just be able to do that because he is who he is and because he's been as successful as he is, as he has and continues to be, given he just did Coinbase. He's able to just say, you know what? No problem. We'll put another 10 million in. Don't even think about it. Without him, I'm pretty sure we don't survive. When do you make that call to keep going versus this isn't working? You know, like this is the moment, you know, because there are, there's tons of times where you get knocked down and, and for all, like every spreadsheet, every person you talk to, everybody's saying like, okay, I think you've pushed this far enough. Like, when do you decide, hey, let's keep it going or hey, let's just throw in the towel and do the next, what's the next thing? What's the next move we can make? It's a great question. There are so many times where you only really know six months after it Mm. should have happened. I would say the easy one is when people aren't giving you money, mm. stop. If you can fund it yourself, you shouldn't. And I had this conversation, I'll tell you a quick story with a friend of mine, business school classmate, very wealthy family, and he's building a company. And we'd have lunch every quarter. And after like the fifth or sixth thing, I was like, you know, dude, I got to tell you, I don't understand what you're trying to build. Like, I just don't. And I'm sorry, I am not dumb. Like, you are not explaining this well to me. I don't get it. And, you know, I still don't get it, but that's okay. And then he'd say, all right, we're going to raise money and we're talking to these people. Next time we'd have lunch. No, those people backed out. They're stupid. And then next lunch, oh, there's other people. And then, oh, no, those people backed out. They didn't get it. They were stupid. And after about a year of this, I was like, look, dude, it's not everybody else that's stupid at some point. It's you. You're the one that's not listening. And he actually got up and stormed out. He's like, I thought you were my friend and you left. I was like, I am your friend. That's why I'm saying this. And you didn't pay for your lunch. You just just left. (laughs) I'm not the one with a lot of money in my family. So anyway, there is a point at which you have to listen and say, you know what, this isn't working and you have to fold it up. And that is a very, very tough thing to do. Uh, But by the time it occurs to you that you should do it, you should have done it months before. Right. Right. So obviously you mentioned, you know, this investor that was very helpful, you know, how, how important have mentors been in the journey? Because there's so much of, so much of feels like entrepreneurship is done in isolation. It feels like it's the late nights. It's like, I'm trying to build this. How important has it been to establish mentors, you know, formally around yourself or masterminds with fellow entrepreneurs? Like how important have those been for you? Mentors, not at all. Hmm. Like zero. I I don't, I wouldn't call Fred a mentor. I'd call him an investor and, Hmm. you know, the second most important person getting work markets outcomes. He's not a mentor to me. Hmm. It wasn't somebody that I'd sit with. I would say coaches, super important. And the ability to have somebody that you can sit with on a weekly basis, sometimes every other week, uh, and kind of talk through your reactions to things and someone that is helpful in getting you to be effective and moving towards your goals. But the other thing that you mentioned, the network of entrepreneurs, vitally important. Vitally important to sit with other people that understand what you're going through. Your friends probably don't. Your team members, you don't want to sit there and tell your team members that you're deathly afraid you're going to screw the whole thing up. They quit jobs to come to you. And so you keep that stuff bottled up and that's not, that's not effective. It's not helping you achieve your goals, but talking with people and, you know, you may not want to tell your investors because again, you don't want to show them that weakness. You know, I would argue it's not a weakness, it's a strength, but having another group of entrepreneurs, which we were lucky enough to have in New York city, we helped start this group called the founders round table and 
we would get together once a month and all talk about the same things we were struggling with. And people would say, hey, you know, when I was dealing with that, I would do this, this, and this. And 99% of the time, their, their advice was not applicable in any way, shape, or form, or their experience here, I should say. But just knowing that other people were going through it, just it helps take that, that, that burden off of your shoulders. I'd always walk out of those meetings lighter, mm. saying, huh, I'm not alone in doing this. Because you're right, all the other times, you are alone. 18 hours a day, seven days a week, you're alone. And so getting together for an hour for breakfast with a bunch of people that understand what you're going through and just sharing, super powerful and super helpful. Highly recommend it. Awesome. I want to ask one more question before we get into our random round. For a network, like building up those people around you, it is super valuable. But if you were to start right now and you were starting in a brand new place, none of your contacts, and you had to build a network around you from scratch, uh, what would you do to start to start building that up? Well, I would look for existing infrastructure. Hmm. So I would, there are entrepreneurial groups, right? If I was just parachuting in somewhere, I didn't know anyone, I would just Google and I would find those entrepreneurial groups. I would start taking people out to lunches and coffees uh, and getting to know them. Because when you, it's shocking that when you ask people for help, how quickly they will jump and help. Most right. people, obviously not everybody. But it's funny how, uh, how infrequently we reach our hand out to say, hey, can you help? And so you just start to ask like, hey, you know, I'm new and I love this. Uh, so I would start looking for entrepreneurship groups. I would go to the various boot camps and I'd volunteer as an experienced founder to go to the Founders Institute as chapters in most cities. And I start to build a network there. I would meet with all the different venture capitalists and investors because they are always going to want to sit down with entrepreneurs and talk about ideas. Uh, that, that's kind of where I would start. Gotcha. That's awesome. Awesome advice. Um, I, I'm going to pivot us into our random round. It's just quick random questions with some good, quick answers here. What profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? Second base for the New York Yankees. Is that, is that acceptable? That's perfect. That's a great, great okay. option. Uh, if you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? I would love to talk to the former president, even though I am not a fan. I He has had more of an impact on history than I could have ever imagined. And I would love to understand if you were actually willing to have a conversation and sitting on a park bench, the two of us. What drives this man? Because it, it just can't be the narcissism and pettiness that I think it is. And so that is sadly who I would choose. Interesting. How do you like to learn best? Do you like books, blogs, podcasts, videos? What's your what's your go-to? Well, I mean, podcasts, first and foremost. I mean, come on. Who doesn't love podcasts? Right. I am a listener and note taker. That is how I learn best. And so I am a huge fan of keeping one notebook where I'm just scribbling things all day long. And at the end of the day, transferring all of that to like the formal notebook of kind of, all right, here's what's going on. Here's what I learned today. Here's where I have to do because I always have to do items. And then I go through them. And that is how I process information. Is it the writing that helps you just think through it? Or do you go back to those notes at any point once it's done? Is it a one and done kind of ritual or is it something you reflect on often? I go back. Very often. Okay. There are, and I have them color-coded. I mean, this is really geeking out here, but I've got color-coded notebooks from the last 10, no, 15 years. And each one of them, I can open them up to any page and I know exactly what's going on and I will refer back to them all the time. Right. That's awesome. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. 
I love to start out drinking a huge amount of water right when I get up. So two or three glasses of water. I then do a, about an hour long workout, which includes yoga uh, and then cardio and then some abs and all of this hopefully before 8 a.m. Hmm. And then uh, I'm showering. I'm an intermittent faster, so I'm not eating anything uh, until 1 p.m. So there's no breakfast. And I want to make sure that I sit down and meditate and set my intentions for the day before nine o'clock. And this has been super important, especially during COVID and especially now as I am unemployed uh, or retired, I guess would be a better term. Uh, it's important for me to have that kind of structure such that at 9 a.m. I'm at my desk and I know what I'm going to accomplish that day and I can start getting going. What's your uh, go-to pump-up song when you're doing these ab workouts? What's what's blasting the headphones? <laughs> I will tell you, I thought a lot about this question and I'm going to have to just go with Eminem, Lose Yourself. Hmm. It's just, it is my favorite, but I'm a bigger fan of variety and just hmm. hearing a different thing. And I make that my song for a couple of weeks, but I'll never really go back to Eminem. Gotcha. That's a good go-to for sure. What are you not very good at? Whew. I mean, dude, I don't know how much time you have for this. <laughs> right. There's a lot. I am not very good at confrontation hmm. and I avoid it where possible which surprises a lot of people on my team because I will always be like, no, that's that wrong. No, I don't agree with you. It's very easy when you're fully in charge. Uh, confrontation in other contexts is much more difficult for me. Hmm. So it depends on the role of who you're talking with or yeah. where you're at in the situation. What is one place online where people can find you the most on social media, website? What's the, where's the best path? You know, there are only three things I do online. One is Twitter, but I'm mostly a voyeur. And so, and Twitter is the only place that I couldn't get Jeff Wald everywhere else. Uh, I'm Jeff Wald on Twitter. I'm Jeffrey Wald. I'm still gonna, I'm gonna try one day to get Jeff Wald still. LinkedIn is by far the place online that I spend the most time from a social context. And so I am a, a LinkedIn open networker, always accept everyone's invite on LinkedIn and always happy to email and, and connect with people there. And uh, I did finally, after buying the domain jeffwald.com in 1997, I finally did put up a website with a lot of the media appearances I've done and speeches I've given and companies I've invested in and books that I've written, like my latest one on the future of work. Uh, that is all finally up at jeffwald.com literally like a few weeks ago. That's awesome. Well, yeah, definitely go check out jeffwald.com. Uh, go go pick up a copy of one of his books and uh, definitely do it right now before the episode's over because if you put it off, you will not pick up a copy of the book. So uh, be do sure to do that do right it. now. Do so, it. so definitely check that out. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining me on the show and uh, really, really enjoyed getting to talk to you and good luck with your with your new business. Thank you so much, Eric. It was a pleasure. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big